<laughs> I haven't had it confirmed other than, uh, I guess, the rumor mill in a way, but uh, I heard recently that Roderick Meredith is at home resting with uh, cancer and that uh, I don't know how bad, I haven't heard, but he's apparently staying home and, and must not be in too good a shape. And then only two or three days ago, I heard that Richard Ames had suffered a stroke. Uh, so, word at, I don't know uh, his condition. They said he was a little better from what I heard a, a day or two afterward. But apparently, Gerald Weston is taking over the, the reins of Living Church of God, at least for the time being. I don't know whether that's temporary, depending on the health of, of Rod Meredith and Dick Ames. I know that name. I don't know that I really knew Gerald Weston. Uh, he was in college in the 60s. I'm not sure whether he was in Pasadena or whether he might have been in Big Sandy. I know the name and know of him, and I can picture him as a young man. Uh, I don't know what he looks like today, <coughs> but uh, that's over 50 years ago. <laughs> so uh, he's still around and apparently is the man that will be in charge there. Of course, this makes you wonder uh, about the faith of many who thought that Rod Meredith and Dick Ames would be the two witnesses in living, and uh, it doesn't appear that that would be the case at this point, considering the health and so on that's involved. Uh, I never really believed that, but some do. And you know, it's here we are at the same time, and it seems like that the, the people in any group that has formed maybe not all of them, but a lot of them, uh, think that their leaders are going to be the leaders here in the end time. That is for God to show when it's time for that to be shown. So our speculation in the meantime doesn't mean a whole lot. As it, And I'm not making fun or ridiculing those who thought that uh, RCM and, and uh, Dick Ames might be those leaders, because it's kind of natural to assume those things sometimes. But God knows who they are, and he will make it known when the time is right. So I, I'm concerned for all those people in living and, and their leadership and their opportunity to be in the kingdom of God, just like with all those who have been a part of God's church. And I do believe that when God gathers his remnant, he will gather some from all over the place and all of these organizations, wherever they might be. That is very clear in Scripture. <clears throat> so, just because they don't understand certain things right now doesn't mean that God will not reveal those things when He begins to show His mighty hand, wherever that may be. All right. Uh, I deferred from the series we're doing on our forefathers last week to cover other material, in the last two weeks in fact, but I want to get back that to that today, so you think, maybe you're already writing Moses at the top of your page, but you're wrong. <coughs> I'm going to cover one today that uh, I don't think any of us have probably even considered, actually two, uh, but we might not have thought of them in this context. And in fact, there are people who question whether this book should even be in the Bible since it doesn't mention God's name in it anywhere. But I think we're going to see that God is very, very much involved in this story. 
tomorrow uh, evening begins the two days of Purim that were celebrated uh, by the Jews when they had their great deliverance uh, from their enemies back in the book of Esther. So, I chose for today two individuals who have a great history, and their example is one that is very, very paramount for us. So, first today, we're going to cover the story. Then we will cover the message, uh, because there is indeed a message in the book of Esther. So, the two individuals that I wish to include in this series on looking to the pit from whence we were digged, or our forefathers, are Esther and Mordecai. Maybe I should put Mordecai and then Esther, uh, Esther being first the cousin, first cousin of Mordecai, and then his adopted daughter once her parents died. So Mordecai comes to great prominence here in this story, as does Esther, so they are sort of joined together, not only as a relationship, but I think as a type as well. Uh, Mordecai, I think, here is a picture of Christ and Esther of the church, uh, who will combine to save the church here at the end. So there is a great deal to this story, and that's part of the message, but... uh, Still in all, let's be thinking as we go through. So let's pick up this book of Esther. Uh, Ahasuerus was the king of the Medes and the Persians, and he had 120, let's see, 127 provinces in his kingdom. Huge kingdom. It went all the way from India to Ethiopia. Covered an awful lot of territory and a lot of people. And they didn't have internet. They didn't even have the U.S. Postal Service or FedEx. They used camels and donkeys uh, to deliver their messages, uh, which took quite some time. So when you wanted something done all through the province, you had to send out a message way, way, way ahead of time for it to get there on muleback. So anyway, this story comes in that uh, in the third year of his reign, he had uh, come to have a pretty high opinion of himself, apparently, and he was going to plan an invasion to invade Greece and to conquer those peoples. So he had a huge gathering of the princes from all around his kingdom, and they had a meeting that lasted, in verse 4, 180 days. That's a pretty good planning session. And at the end of that time, he decided to throw a banquet for all of those people, uh, the colors, verse 6, were white, green, and blue, or violet. Uh, you see those colors on a lot of Middle Eastern flags even yet today. Anyway, it was a, it was a big deal. They had all kinds of wine served in vessels of gold, verse 7. And uh, you weren't compelled to drink according to the law, but you certainly were offered it. And they had seven days of... Uh, drink, eating and drinking following 180 days of planning. Now, at the same time, the Queen Vashti had planned a feast for the women. And uh, she was rejoicing with them, and they were having ladies' group meetings and whatnot. I don't know exactly what it all 
was about. But uh, the heart of the king, verse 10, was very merry. He had been feasting and, and drinking for seven days and having a good time with his pals. And, and then he remembered that his wife was a very, very beautiful woman. So he summoned her so he could show off his arm candy to all these people who had come all the way from India and all over the empire. And he wanted to show her off. Uh, so he said, verse 11, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal. I, I don't know whether that was whiskey back then or not. <laughs> I think it was what she wore on her head, actually. But she was a beautiful woman. So we won't go through all that, but the, the bottom line there is she refused to come. Now, according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, you didn't do that to the king. Uh, or you didn't do it to your husband. If he bid you to come, you came. And this was a great conundrum then to the king. He said to the wise men in verse 13, what are we going to do about this? He was very, very frustrated, and, and he knew that it was going to cause problems. So verse 16, Mimucan uh, answered the king and said, uh, that Vashti, Vashti had not only done wrong to the king, but also to the princes and to all the people, because they would all disrespect the king, they would disrespect their governors, and the women would then disrespect their husbands. So if this thing was done at the top, it uh, would reverberate all the way down, and that there would be a great deal of contempt and wrath into verse 18. So... Uh, we, this man uh, advised the king on what to do. Second half of verse 19, that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal estate to another that is better than she. So he said, basically, kick her out. She's not to be queen anymore. And uh, the king will replace her with someone better than she is. Uh, and that that would be published throughout the empire and all the wives should then give their husbands honor, small and great. The king liked that idea. He thought that was a good thing. He's already kind of ticked off at Vashti at this point anyway. So they sent out letters to all the provinces that every man should bear rule in his own house, verse 22. And that would be published in all the languages of all the people. In 127 provinces then... You had a lot of different races, had a lot of different uh, languages. So that was quite an empire to be overseeing at that time. Anyway, let's move on down. Uh, they started sending out for fair young virgins uh, to bring before the king. In verse 4, let the maiden which pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. So that pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a certain Jew, verse 5, whose name was Mordecai, and a Benjamite. So he was a Jew uh, in that Judah, Levi, and Benjamin were one unit, and the other tribes, the northern tribes, were another unit. So they were all referred to generally as the kingdom of Judah. So he was a Jew, but he was also a Benjamite by blood. And they'd been carried away. So this Mordecai brought up uh, Esther, his uncle's daughter. Uh, she was a, an orphan, 
and she was fair and beautiful. Um, Proverbs 31, we read about uh, the virtuous woman and how she is fair and beautiful, and certainly the analogy is there of the church in relationship to Christ. So here is another woman who is young and fair and beautiful and a virgin, and Christ refers to the church as the virgin daughter. Uh, we aren't virgins to sin by any means. Paul referred to the Corinthians and says, I will present them as a chaste virgin to Christ, which means that their sins would have to be forgiven and that they were spiritually virgins at that point. But she was physically. Now, they had to have these all purified for a year. In verse 10, because of what Mordecai had told her, Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred. Uh, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. She wasn't to let it be known that she was a Jew. She was just someone who was presented... So the relationship between Esther and Mordecai was not known. Uh, and they kept that a secret on purpose. Now that becomes important to the story later because the two were not associated together until the association was later made. Uh, anyway, Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house. They shut these women up in a specific house. And he was worried about her, didn't know what would become of her, but he wanted her in on this situation. <clears throat> so when every maid's turn was to come to the king, verse 12, after 12 months of cleansing and purifying and so on, uh, she would come in, and in verse 14, in the evening she went in, and on the morrow she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of Ashgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. So basically what the king did is he brought them in as virgins, kept them overnight, and then sent them to the concubine house on the next day. So they were not virgins when they left there. And she didn't go back to the king anymore except he had some delight in her and called her by name. So she was in the, with the concubines until that time. So with this background, verse 15, here comes Esther. It's her turn. Uh... And she was come to go into the king. Interesting thing here. She required nothing but what uh, Hegel, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all of them that looked on her. So she didn't dress herself all up fancy and gussy herself up with all kinds of makeup. She went basically natural. Just her natural beauty is what seems to be applied here. Didn't doll herself up like the rest of them did. But she was so beautiful that uh, everybody stood back in amazement anyhow. I wonder if Christ's bride is going to have herself dressed in pure white linen clothes, and high character, and be beautiful. I think there's no doubt of that. So she was taken in to the king. In verse 17, the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, it doesn't say here whether she was the last of those that were prepared or, or whether she came in the middle somewhere. But when he saw her, I guess it was love at first sight. And uh, he said, this is the end of this. This is the queen. 
So he set her up as the queen. Christ calls his bride the apple of his eye. That's the one I want. Those are the people I'm after. So then they had a great feast, verse 18, and they called it Esther's Feast. And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. Uh, and, and Mordecai sat at the king's gate, and in verse 20, Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people, as Mordecai had told her. So now she was the queen, and the king, nor anybody else knew she was a Jew. What do you think is one of the reaction down the line somewhere when they find out she's a Jew? What has been the reaction of people ever since the days of Judah? Anyway, uh, verse 21, uh, two of the king's chamberlains uh, were angry and sought to lay a hand on King Ahasuerus. So here was a conspiracy, a plot. There are people today who say there are no conspiracies. A conspiracy goes back all the way to uh, one who came to be Satan, who conspired with one-third of the angels of God to take over the throne of God. So conspiracies are nothing new. And here there was one by these two guys to kill the king. And Mordecai heard about it and told it to Esther the queen. So then they looked into it, verse 23, and uh, found out that it was true. So they hanged both conspirators on a tree. And uh, that was the end of that. Now after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadithi, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. Nothing said about Mordecai, who blew the whistle on the conspiracy at this point. Uh, and this Haman was set very high, and they, verse 2, reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Okay, this guy's been promoted in the king's sight. Have you ever read the book of Daniel? And now some were uh, promoted there, and then they had enemies. Uh, we'll have reference to Daniel a little later on. So Mordecai bowed not to the king's image, who was Haman. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said to Mar Mordecai, Why don't you do what the king said? And it came to pass when they spoke daily to him, every day. Why aren't you doing what the king says? And he didn't listen. Pretty hard, pretty stubborn here. So they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told him that he was a Jew. Now, he hadn't told him Esther was a Jew, but he had told these guys he was a Jew. And what that implied was that he had a different god. Uh, the king was not his god, and Haman certainly was not his god, so he was not going to bow down to anyone other than God. Well, this made Haman quite angry, verse 5. And he wanted to find Mordecai alone and lay hands on him. That means they want to kill somebody. For they had showed him the people of Mordecai. 
So Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were out throughout the whole 127 provinces. So he took this personal grudge of one Jew who would not bow before him and decided he would kill every Jew that there was. That's a, that's a pretty good piece of revenge. Anyway, uh, verse 7, the first month, the month of Nisan, uh, they cast Pur, that is the lot, before Haman. Well, Haman was the one that made the decisions. Ahasuerus uh, had his private life. But generally, when kings were in this kind of position, they didn't like the burden of everyday rules, so they'd hand it over to somebody second and third in command and let them do the running of things. That's just been the history of kings. So Haman, verse 8, says, There's a certain people scattered abroad among all the people, and they won't do what the king says. If it please the king, verse 9, let it be written that they may be destroyed, and I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. So what he's actually offering here is he'd give the king 10,000 talents of silver for a license to kill all Jews. That was the price he put on the life of all Jews, and it was there to give the king incentive to go along with this plan. The king took his ring and gave it to Haman. Now, that's what you gave orders by, was that king's seal on that ring. That meant that it was official from the king. The king said to Haman, The silver is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. So he says, I'm not only not going to take the silver, but you can kill all the Jews anyway. We'll see that that clearly was the price a little later on here. So they called all the king's uh, people together in the first month, and letters were sent uh, to kill, verse 13, and to cause to perish all Jews, young and old, little children and women, on the 13th day of the 12th month. So there was about 11 months here of uh, plotting and planning and word to get to all the province and word about what to do. Uh, and to take the spoil of them for a prey, in the verse 13. So not only kill every Jew, but take everything he has for prey. You can have everything that those Jews have. So that was additional incentive. Not only you get to kill all the Jews, but you get to have everything they have. That'll get you to oil your gun. Well, sharpen your sword in those days. So it was sent out. And when verse chapter 4, Marduk heard this, he rent his clothes and put on sackcloth and cried out. And he came before the king's gate, and when you couldn't go into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth, so he couldn't go in as he had. And then the Jews all heard, and then they started fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes, because they were all going to have the whole, whole kit and caboodle of them wiped out. That's kind of a scary edict to come down, isn't it? When your whole entire nation is going to be killed. So Esther finally hears about it, verse 4. And she was exceedingly grieved. And she sent 
clothes for Mordecai so he might be able to come talk to her, but he wouldn't accept the clothes. So then Esther called one of the king's chamberlains and sent a message to Mordecai. Well, she wanted to know what's going on. She'd heard rumors, but she wanted to know straight from Mordecai. So this guy went to Mordecai in verse 7. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasury for the Jews to destroy them. So he had promised the king the 10,000 talents. The king said, no, I'll keep it, kill him anyway. And he showed him the, the paperwork. Uh, verse 11, all the king's servants do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come into the king of the inner court who is not called there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. So uh, Esther wanted to go in to the king. Uh, Mordecai was afraid she's going to die. Uh, she said, I haven't, he hasn't called me for 30 days now, and I don't know what his attitude is. After all this that's happened, he's ordered that all Jews be killed, and he may not know it, but I am one. <laughs> and he may know it by now. See, she, she didn't know what he knew or what he had found out, and he hadn't called for her in 30 days, so that would begin to work on you where you begin to think, well, is he still pleased with me? Does he care about me? Does he hate me now? A lot of thoughts could have gone through her mind in 30 days. Now, let's understand what this woman went through and what she was willing to do for her people. Verse 12, they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Uh, verse 13, Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with yourself that you shall escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. He warned her. He says, you go into the king, you may die like all the rest of the Jews. Count the cost here. Christ tells us, count the cost before we put forth our lives for his purposes and for his people. And then he added some, some to that thought. For if you all together hold your peace at this time, then shall there be enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. Well, he says, you can keep quiet, Esther, but surely God isn't going to let all the Jews die. Now, God, I mean, Mordecai knew God's promises to the Jews about how uh, there would be someone to sit on the throne of the Jews and that they would survive. So he says, maybe you don't need to do this. Maybe help will come from some other place. But you and your father's house shall be destroyed. You, me, all of us will die. But maybe the Jews will be saved. And then he adds another thought. Who knows whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Don't we speculate at times of where we are and what we're doing and what God might be doing? Uh, all splinters, all branches of the church today do that. They wonder what, how God might be using them or what, for what purpose. Uh, does, do you see God in your life? And they all try to see God in their lives, one way or another. So Mordecai even says to Esther, maybe God sent you here. That's, a, that's what's being implied. Maybe God sent you for a purpose 
to do the deliverance. Count the cost. No, we may all die. No, this may not work. Uh, but maybe you've been called for a purpose here. So there was some speculation. There was some fear in Mordecai and Esther. They had to recognize that they could die if this thing was carried through. So they counted the cost. Verse 15, Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast you for me, neither eat nor drink, three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I die, I die. I'm going to do this thing for the sake of my people. Are we willing to lay our life on the line? What did Christ say? That we need to be able and willing to lay down our life for our brother. Uh, he laid down his life for all of us. So, even as Isaac was willing to lay his, down, his life down when Abraham requested it, uh, so was Esther willing to lay her life down and say, Hey, if I die, I die. That's just the way it is. Let's fast and pray. Well, God's name isn't mentioned, but who do you fast and pray before? Who do you cry aloud in sackcloth and ashes to? Well, obviously to God. That was the God of the Jews, and there wasn't anybody else that they would turn to except Him. So for people to say God isn't involved in this, uh, they got another thing coming, and we'll prove that a little later on. So, Mordecai did that. They all fasted and prayed, and then she put on a royal apparel, probably scared half to death, but with confidence and faith and trust the three days of fasting had strengthened her with. <coughs> so she went in, and this is amazing. Verse 3, the king said to her, What will you, Queen Esther, and what is your request? He knew she couldn't come there without being summoned, and the death was the penalty if he didn't extend the scepter. So he said, this must be pretty important to Esther, or she wouldn't have stuck her head in here uh, without being summoned. So he said, whatever you want, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. That was also mentioned in the book of Daniel, <coughs> I think, and other places where a king was willing to give up half his kingdom for somebody when they had done something for him, or he just simply wanted to please them. Uh, she thought this through, and <coughs> she didn't just hit him cold and tell the whole story. She says, I've prepared a banquet, and uh, I'd like for you and Haman to come. Now, uh, here, she knew, was her chief enemy, and she invited her main enemy to this interview with the king. <coughs> so he says, bring Haman here and hurry, that we may do as Esther said. So they came to the banquet, the king said to Esther, at the banquet of wine, now this wasn't necessarily a banquet of food, that was to be the next day, but a banquet of wine. So she was going to give the king and Haman some wine, and they would all sit around and, and have some, and then as they sat, the king says, what is your petition? What's your question? What do you want? He'd already promised half the kingdom. 
and reiterated that. Then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is, if I found her in your favor in your sight, uh, let's have a banquet tomorrow, which I'll prepare for you and Haman again. This is interesting. She feared for her life. Mordecai feared for her life. And when she went in, the king was all in her favor. was willing to do anything for her. So then she wined him, and then she dined him the next day, uh, along with her chief enemy. Now, how did Haman take this? Verse 9. Then went Haman forth that day joyful and with a glad heart. When Haman saw Mordecai in the gate that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indication against Mordecai. So he didn't know the connection between Mordecai and Esther at this point. He just hated Mordecai. But he was so happy that he had had an audience with the king and the queen and no one else there. So he refrained himself from throwing rocks or strangling Haman and uh, came home and called all his friends and his wife and told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things wherein the king had promoted him, verse 11, and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. So the guy had a huge ego, and he was one of those social and kingdom climbers that wanted to be at the top. So boy, was he ever elated. And he said... The queen let no man come in with the king to the banquet, but just me. Private dinner, private audience with the king and the queen. So he was happy as he could be, and yet, verse 13, All this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. He wanted everyone to worship him, to reverence him, to bow before him. And Mordecai was the sole sore thumb, apparently, in the kingdom at that point, who at least obviously would not bow down before Haman. So he says, I am so happy today, but there's just one thing that's really a burr under my saddle, and that's that Mordecai. So his wife and his friends said, hey, we could take care of that. Build a gallows. Hang the dude. Uh, that'll solve that problem, and then everybody will pay you favor. Well, is God involved in this story? Chapter 6, on that night could not the king sleep. I don't know how well the king slept otherwise, but apparently pretty good. But that night, he couldn't sleep. So, he commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles and had somebody read him the story of his reign and of his rule and the events that had occurred and all those things, maybe he found comfort in, in his own kingship and power. So he wanted a review of those things, read before. It didn't have television, so read me all these stories. And there in the story, lo and behold, there was told about Mordecai, uh, blowing the lid off the, the conspiracy to kill the king. And the king sat up on his bed and said, What honor and dignity has been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered to him, Nothing was done for him. He saved your life, O great king, and nothing's happened for poor old Mordecai. Well, the king said, Who is in the court? 
He wanted to do something about this. He wanted to fix it. Let's get this Mordecai uh, some honor and some glory for having saved my life. He said, who is in the court? Well, Haman had happened to come in. <laughs> they said, well, Haman's out there. So he called Haman in and uh, asked him, what should I do for a man that I want to honor? Well, Haman figured he was the one to honor. He'd only, just the day before, been in a wine banquet with the king and the queen. And so when the king said, how should I honor a man that I delight in and want to honor? End of verse 6, Haman thought in his heart, to whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Ego and vanity can get you in trouble. Self-righteousness can get us in trouble. So Haman, ah, here's my chance. Let the royal apparel be brought which the king uses to wear. Bring, bring your own clothes, O king. And the horse that the king rides on, your favorite horse, bring that one in. Ah, and the crown royal, which is set upon the king's head. This is really pushing it, ain't it? <laughs> and let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man with all whom the king delights to honor. And old Haman's just sitting there picturing himself wearing all this stuff and sitting on that horse. And let him go throughout the whole city and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So they'd have fans and banners waving and people going on ahead saying, here's the man that the king favors above all else. Look, he's wearing the king's clothes. He's got his crown royal on. Uh, he's on the king's horse. Oh, what a man. So the king said to Haman, Make haste, and take the apparel and the horse, as you have said, and do all these things <laughs> to Mordecai the Jew. Can you believe how this story unfolds? This is incredible. Do this to Mordecai. <laughs> Let nothing fail of all that you've spoken. Everything you described, Haman, you do to Mordecai. He didn't even know the relationship between Haman and Mordecai. Haman just happened to be in the court. Does this thing, does this all happen by coincidence? Can you see God in this? I, I can't not see him in this. Doesn't have to be mentioned by name. Anyway, Haman, I guess I better do this. this. Verse 12, Mordecai came to the king's gate uh, and Haman hasted to his house mourning and having his head covered. Oh my, this turned around bad. And uh, he told his Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened. Uh, he had wise men as his advisors, and his wife was there too. And they said, if Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom you have begun to fall... You shall not prevail against him, but you shall sh surely fall before him. Wait a minute. Oh, it says you won't prevail against him, but you're, you're dead meat, basically is the message they gave to him. 
And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlain, hasted to bring Haman to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Now, the king still doesn't know all that has happened here, and that Mordecai was the one that Haman hated. So the king and Haman came to the banquet next day. Haman must have had an awful lot of different thoughts going through his head, as did Esther, and the king as well. The king said to Esther the second day, What's your petition, Queen Esther? I'll give you half the kingdom. Verse 3, Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. Now, she'd been offered half of the 127 provinces, half of Asia, if you will, uh, all the way across northern Africa. She'd been offered all of that, and she just blew right by it, didn't say a thing about it, my, my life and the life of my people. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. Now, Haman was sitting there, and she hadn't mentioned his name yet. I imagine he's beginning to kind of uh, squirm around in his chair at this point. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, within, you know, if we were just sold as slaves, I had held my tongue. You know, if you'd have just put us in slavery, I, would, I wouldn't say a word. But they threatened to kill us all. Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said to Esther the king, the queen, Who is he and where is he that dares presume in his heart to kill the queen and all her relatives? Where is he? Well, he was about a foot and a half away. <laughs> right there at the table with him. Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid. <laughs> I, I think you could probably put a few uh, synonyms on the front of that and, and describe it a little more dramatically than that. He was really, really afraid. Anyway, she announced it right there, just among the three of them. Verse 7, The king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went into the palace garden. Uh, he, it made him so frustrated, so angry, so upset, he got up and went outside. He had to think this over. So when he thought it over, he returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine. So they had wine and food at this one. And Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. When you're that scared and that stupid, you do really, really stupid things. So while the king was thinking it over, he came, Haman came over to try to get Esther to back off this and to say some nice words about him. And she apparently was laying on a couch or a bed at that point, and he got on the same bed with her. Then said the king, Will he force the queen also before me in the house? <laughs> wow! He's adding to his trouble here. As the word went out of the king's mouth, the servants covered Haman's face. There's a dead man. Just as his family had told him, his wife and his advisors the day before. 
So uh, one of the chamberlains said before the king, uh, they, they built a scaffold out here. Not a scaffold, a, a hangman's... What's the word I'm looking for? A, a gallows. Uh, to hang Mordecai on. So the king said, hey, that's handy. Let's just hang Haman on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. He said, okay, I'm going back to being happy now. Uh, the threat to me and to my queen and to the Jews is gone. He probably didn't think too much about the Jews at that point, but his own life and his own wife. Uh, and that day, he gave Haman's house to Esther. And everything that Haman had owned, he gave to Esther. Uh, and the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. So Mordecai came from being a Jew that sat at the gate to the same position Haman had had, to have authority to stamp any documents to make decisions for the king. He became the number two man in the kingdom. Uh, Christ is the number two man in the kingdom of God, and he has qualified by giving his life and offering his life. I think we should begin to see that story in here uh, for his bride-to-be and for her children throughout the millennium and the great white throne judgment. So she was willing to sacrifice herself for Mordecai, and for her people, just as we are here to lay down our lives for each other. So that story seems quite clear to me. It's in the Bible, after all. Verse 4, the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, so Esther arose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, I found favor, uh, I want you to reverse the letters devised by Haman, which the king had signed, to kill all Jews. Now, this created a political problem. She said, how can I endure to see this evil on my people? How can I see this destruction? So the king, verse 7, said to Esther, I've given Esther the house of Haman. They hanged him on the gallows. Write you also for the Jews, as it likes you, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring, for the writing which is written in the king's name, and sealed with the king's ring, may no man reverse. He says, I can't change the order. It's been given. So let it be written, so let it be done. And the rules of the Medes and the Persians. So he says, I can't change that. So they called people together, and they talked this over, and they found a way around it. He says, I can't reverse the order for them to be killed, but I will let them defend themselves. Verse 11, wherein the king granted the Jews, which were in every city, to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, to cause to perish... Sounds like lawyer language. All the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. So he says, you can kill them and you can take what they have, just like they were going to do to you. So he says, I can't stop the order that they can kill you, but I can give you an order that says you can kill them. 
So upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, this order was given. Uh, and it was to be published so that the Jews should be ready against that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So they sent the mules and the camels and sent the word everywhere throughout all 127 uh, provinces. And then Mordecai put on those uh, royal apparel and so on. In verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Keep that in mind. After you've been threatened with your life and then that is removed and you can avenge yourself, <coughs> that would give you happiness and joy. And wherever it came, this commandment, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. Where did have a nice day come from? wasn't Forrest Gump. It was from the Jews long ago. They had a nice day. Well, good, okay, Which, whichever. Interesting, many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. They converted to Judaism even though they weren't blood Jews. Well, that's been done in the past. Aren't we grafted in as spiritual Jews? Didn't we become spiritual Jews when we weren't? We might have been partly of the physical blood of Israel, but not of the spirit. Now we are. So, uh, the twelfth month of Adar was coming. End of verse 1, it was turned to the contrary that the Jews had rule over them that hated them. So the Jews gathered themselves together throughout, uh, and people began to fear the Jews instead of those that were going to kill the Jews. Verse 3, all the rulers of the provinces, the lieutenants, deputies, officers of the king helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. So suddenly, because Mordecai was the number two man in the kingdom, they were afraid of him. <laughs> so they took the side of the Jews. See how this thing is just completely turning around. So the whole kingdom now basically was on the Jews' side. For Mordecai was great in the king's house. In verse 5, Thus the Jews smote all their enemies with a stroke of the sword and slaughter and destruction and did what they would to those that hated them. And in the king's palace at Shushan, the palace grounds alone, they killed 500 people that day. And that number was brought before the king, verse 11. And the king said to Esther the queen, the Jews have slain and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the palace, and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the provinces? If they killed 500 here, what have they done somewhere else? He was uh, taken by utter surprise, apparently, and wondered, what is going on in my kingdom? Uh, now what is your petition? And it shall be granted you. Or what is your request further? And it shall be done. So it's, all right, they've killed 500 people. I don't know what they've done in the rest of the provinces. The queen, you are my queen. And anything else you want, you got it, girl. Then said Esther, If it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Shushan 
to do tomorrow also according to this day's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. Now, those sons had already been killed according to uh, verse 10. They, they had already killed them, but it was pure ignominy to be hung. So she said, don't bury them, hang them. <laughs> For everybody to see. The king commanded it so to be done. And the decree was given at Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. So they gathered themselves together uh, all over the place. And in verse 16, it says they had killed 75,000. Not that's, that's the number the king was wondering about. 500 here, what about elsewhere? 75,000 they had killed. It must have felt pretty good to look at everyone who was your enemy and kill them. <laughs> that would give you a day of joy and gladness that your enemies were not around anymore. Uh, but they laid not their hands on the prey. They didn't spoil them, didn't take anything they had. They just killed them. They'd been given permission by the king to take everything they had. But they would held that from themselves and did not take it. They didn't let greed take over. They just were thankful to get rid of their enemies. And it was a day of feast and gladness. Feasting and gladness. Uh, verse 19, Therefore the Jews of the villages that dwelt in the unwalled towns, do you remember Zechariah 2, where God says here in the end time He's going to put us in unwalled villages? And then they feasted and had a good day and sent portions or some food one to another and gave gifts, it says later on. And then it was established that they would keep the 14th and 15th day of the same yearly. And as the days the Jews rested from their enemies and the month which was turned to them from sorrow to joy and from mourning to a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy and sending portions one to another and gifts to the poor. We don't have to give gifts to each other, all of us. Gifts can be given to the poor who are unfortunate. These people have been unfortunate, were going to die, and now they were going to live. <coughs> so this was established. And they called it Purim because it was by lot that the order had come to consume and to destroy them, verse 24. So they called them Purim after the name of Pure or Pur, verse 26. Uh, so, verse 27, the Jews ordained and took upon them and upon their seed, those who would follow them, and upon all such as joined themselves to them, converted Jews, so as it should not fail that they would keep these two days according to their writing and according to their appointed time every year. Not just them, but their seed after them. And that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. This was a deliverance that would be remembered and kept as a memorial, four-time immemorial. And they can that by letter, sent the letters to the Jews, verse 30, to the 127 provinces of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth. What are we after? 
peace, and truth. God says that those who cling to the truth, He will give peace there in the book of Haggai here at the end time. So they confirmed these days when the queen enjoined them as they had decreed for themselves and for their seed the matters of the fastings and their cry. Now in chapter 10, uh, King Ahasuerus laid a tribute upon the land and the isles of the sea. And verse 3, For Mordecai the Jew was next to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and accepted of the multitude of his brethren seeking the wealth of his people and speaking peace to all his seed. So Ahasuerus, who had been scheduled to die, was now made number two in the kingdom and given great honor uh, that Haman had and had wanted. And the only sore spot for Haman had been Mordecai. And now Mordecai is exalted and Haman is dead. Now that's the story. What about the message? It's already after 2 o'clock, so we'll get into this and maybe we'll finish it. How long can you sit? Our sermons aren't near as long as they used to be, you know. I can remember three and four hour ones often back in the 50s and 60s, and then they cut it back to an hour and a half during the 60s and 70s and 80s, and so I'm trying to be kind and gentle and loving with you and keep it to about an hour, hour and 15 minutes. I usually quit around 2.15, 2.20, and if we start at 1, there's 15 minutes of songs and prayer and stuff, so at 2.15, really, it's only about an hour. So, we'll see how long this goes. Let's tie this together. Uh, let's go, first of all, to Matthew 24. We were there last week. Matthew 24. Christ and the disciples are discussing the temple and things that shall be uh, in the end time. What, what will be the signs of your coming and the signs of the end? <clears throat> Let's skip right down to verse <clears throat> 9. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. Have you heard anything recently about anything like that? Maybe in the last hour. <clears throat> and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Now, he's speaking here of the spiritual Jews, their leaders in training, the apostles, that the spiritual Jews would be under the gun in the end times. One of the signs of his coming. Then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. So it's not just their enemies on the outside, but even those on the inside, brethren together, would turn on each other. Now that's going to happen, already has to some degree in this destruction of the church. Now do you begin to see how much Mordecai and Esther stand out in that they did not betray their people, but they stood up for and were willing to sacrifice their lives for their people, even as Christ and the apostles and the prophets did. Many false prophets will rise and deceive many. And because of sin, the love of many will wax cold, and you have to endure to the end. And if you do, you'll be saved. Then he goes on to show how the gospel will be preached to all the world, and then the end shall come. 
So, this kind of pressure against the church has not yet occurred, but it shall. And then the gospel will be preached around the world as a witness, and the end will come. So, what comes prior to the preaching of the gospel has not yet happened. Herbert Armstrong thought he was it, and that was it, and so did we. But it didn't happen that way. Uh, But before long, true Christians are going to be under the gun to be killed. And once that begins to happen, very quickly then, the gospel will start being preached. Didn't happen 30 plus years ago. It's still in front of us. Who are the two witnesses? Talks about going to the world as a witness before the end comes. And those who are alive then will see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place. Then it's time to flee for your very lives, just as the Jews back then uh, would have been forced to flee for their lives because they couldn't have survived any other way. And it's referred back to the book of Daniel here. Ah, back to the book of Daniel. Let's go there. Let's start this back early in Daniel. We'll go forward very quickly. But Daniel 1, you remember the story here where uh, Babylon came in and took over the kingdom and took the Jews of of Jerusalem and and Israel and took the Jews captive. And uh, they made eunuchs of the young men. So Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been castrated and were there to serve the king. That's the setting. But notice in verse 21 a note that is important here in Daniel 1. Daniel continued even to the first year of King Cyrus. That's very important to the story. Because Cyrus was the son of Ahasuerus, Esther's husband. We'll see that confirmed just a little later here. It doesn't say here that Daniel died in the first year of King Cyrus. It said he would last and he would still be around when Cyrus began to reign. That's an important point to catch right off at the beginning of the book of Daniel. Now notice chapter 2, verse 28. When Daniel came in to uh, interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we won't go through that story, but... It is very important to notice in verse 28, he says, There is a God in heaven that reveals secrets and makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. This is something that is going to come to pass in the latter days. Now, many Bible scholars try to find places where this has been done in history, and indeed you can find similar events even to the desecrating of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes. But that was not the latter days. This is something that would be repeated, it would be historical, but it would be repeated in the latter days. So it establishes right off the bat in Daniel that everything written here is for the end times, okay? And it even says at the end of the book of Daniel that these things were not to be understood until the time of the end, and they would be sealed up until then. So this whole story is about the end times, but it won't be understood until the end times. 
I don't care how smart a scholar thinks he is. Okay? Now let's go to chapter 6. We know that Nebuchadnezzar died and Belshazzar, his son, took his place. And then they had the, the great banquet where they took the temple vessels and drank their wine and had their orgy with them and the handwriting on the wall, and Belshazzar was slain that very night. Now, Darius the Mede took the kingdom that very night. They went in under the gate after they diverted the river and took uh, the kingdom of Babylon. So the Medes and the Persians took that kingdom. And it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. So he had to have a lot of lieutenants. Still a big kingdom here. And over these three presidents, and uh, there were three presidents over them all, of whom Daniel was first. So Darius comes in, takes over the kingdom, appoints 120 rulers and three main guys at the palace, and Daniel was the head of those three. <coughs> so Daniel was set up here as the number two man in the kingdom again. Darius didn't really even know him. Maybe he heard the story, but Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. So that's the story there. Uh, now, let's see, where, where did I want to go here next? There was a conspiracy. Uh, and to, to kill Daniel. And Daniel was delivered. When the king heard it, he was very sorry. And in verse 14, he sought to deliver him. And he tried to figure out a way to save him, but he couldn't. So he was very concerned, and the next day he ran to the lion's den, uh, hollered, Daniel, Daniel, and Daniel said, Oh, I'm here. <laughs> Everything's okay. Lions weren't hungry. Uh, I've been saved. So the king was very happy. Uh, now let's go on, I think, to chapter 8. Oh wait a minute! I'm 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 I wrote this in my margin. I'm I'm saying chapter eight and chapter seven that that had to do with uh, with Esther. Let's get back over here to Daniel. Let's go to Daniel nine now, and let's see this begin to be tied together in verse one of chapter nine. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the seed of the Medes which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. So, right here in Daniel 1, we have the story of Ahasuerus the king, of Esther the queen, and the son born to Esther, who was the son of King Ahasuerus. So, this Darius, and the scholars argue here about who's, who is Darius and who is Cyrus, uh, but obviously, Cyrus uh, and Darius were the same individual. They called them by different names. Just as Daniel had a Babylonian name and a Hebrew name, as did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and so on. 
Anyway, it says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years, how long that they would be there, 70 years. Now, didn't we read back in Daniel 1, verse 21, that Daniel continued into the first year of King Cyrus. So Cyrus was to be the king, and Daniel would be there to his first year. So we come to chapter 9, and this is the first year of his reign. So Cyrus and Darius, I think, internally in Scripture, are shown to be the same person here. I don't care what the scholars say. But it was that first year of Cyrus' reign, the son of Ahasuerus, the son of Esther. So you'd had Mordecai and Esther with the king, Ahasuerus. Now you had his son, and Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were associated with the present king, who was at this point half Jew and half Mede and Persian, the Cyrus. Now, we're talking about when? The latter days. We're talking about all these things had to do with the latter days in the book of Daniel. So the story of Mordecai and Esther, or a story of Christ and his bride, and of people who would be at the end of this age who would interact with Christ and his bride. <clears throat> That's what the message is. <clears throat> now, he saw that they would be delivered after 70 years. We find the same thing. 1933 was when the church began to be formed and to move forward. 2003 is a date which you and I are familiar with in which we had an organized beginning on this land in the original promised land at the edge of Zion near Jerusalem. Seventy years of the church being in the captivity of Babylon and then being given its own land just as the land was given back to the Jews to begin to fulfill the things of God. This is an end-time story. There also is a Cyrus mentioned in, in Isaiah 44 and 45, who may indeed be part Israelite blood, but part Gentile blood as well, who will be given the treasures, the gold and the silver, and the temple treasures, just as Cyrus had them. Now, when Ezra later came to this same king, the king says, what's troubling you, Ezra? Well, my people be delivered. And the king said, okay, go build a temple. Do it. You can have everything you need from me. I'll give you the money for wages. I'll give you the temple vessels. I'll give you everything. Go take care of it. <laughs> now, why did he have that attitude? He knew the story of his mother and of Ahasuerus. He knew the story of Haman. His mother had told him that. His adopted father and grandfather, Mordecai, had told him of it. He was very aware of the Jews and their plight and their worship of God. Do you think Esther raised this Cyrus to be anything but a God-fearing Jew? That's what she would have done. And when he became king, he would have that background. Now, he was king of the Medes and Persians, don't get me wrong, and he was half Gentile. But he still understood his mothers and half his people. So when 
Ezra came and said, the Jews need help, he says, okay, no problem, we'll do this. Isaiah 44 and 45 say that a time will come when our sins are forgiven and removed like a cloud, and God will begin to bless, and He will give His church, His people, the prey. Now, I'll tell you something else they will be given to do. When people come to kill them, those at the end, the leaders of them, will be given opportunity to kill their enemies. Fire coming out of their mouths. We read that in Revelation 11, do we not? Now, it's not that they kill them, but God is going to cause a miracle of fire to come, and their enemies will be destroyed before them wherever they go, whoever stands in their way. And the plagues that they deliver at their own behest, as they see fit, will kill millions and millions of people. Now, does that sound like the story we just read, where they are given permission to kill all their enemies and to plague them? That story is right here in the book of Daniel. Ahasuerus is mentioned in chapter 9, verse 1. Undeniable. It's right there. This story is for the end time. The whole story of Esther and Mordecai is for the end time, and it will be repeated. That's why it's important for us to keep Purim and to know what God is doing. Daniel 11 goes into all of this. Let's just read a a small part of it here. It echoes what we read in uh, Matthew 24. Well, before we even go there, uh, it talks about the sanctuary that is made desolate in chapter 9, verse 17, the abomination being set up. And it shows that after building of the city of Jerusalem at the end of chapter 9, that the abomination of desolation will be set up And we have to flee from it, as Christ told us in Matthew 24. So, all of this is going to happen. Uh, Let's go down to chapter 11. Uh, It talks about this individual who will be in charge. And he will have indignation, verse 30, against the holy covenant. So shall he do. He shall even receive, return, and have intelligence with them that forsake the covenant. Does it say in Matthew 24, some will forsake and turn in each other? Some will forsake the Holy Covenant and betray their brothers to death, just like Christ said. It's written right here. An arm shall stand on his part, he'll have the military, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away the daily sacrifice and place the abomination that makes desolate. So people will betray one another. Christians, I mean people in God's church today, are going to betray one another to the death. And then the abomination will be set up. That has not yet happened, has it? Even as it had not happened in Matthew 24, before the gospel is preached, Herbert Armstrong was not the end-time final Elijah. He did not preach the gospel around the world, and he did not restore all truth. And people did not betray one another to death before he died. That is yet to come. It is just in front of us. And after that begins to happen, the abomination will be set up, and we will have to flee. Let him who reads understand, Christ said. 
And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. They'll think they've saved their hide like Haman thought he had saved his. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. Now when they shall fall, they shall be helped with a little help. But many shall cleave to them with flatteries. Didn't people decide to get converted to Judaism back in Esther's story? <coughs> Some of them of understanding shall fall to try them, to purge, and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is for a time appointed. So the abomination will be set up, and many will be left behind in the great tribulation, for then shall be great tribulation such as has never been, Matthew 24 again. And they will be left behind in it to try them and to make them white in tribulation and martyrdom. And the king will do according to his will. Now it does say at the end of this chapter that the king of the north will plant his tabernacles, verse 45, uh, between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Original Jerusalem had a sea in front and behind it. Lakes on both sides you could fish in. And the glorious holy mountain was between them. That's where the temple will be built. It's where Jerusalem will be built. And he will come to his end and none shall help him. So when he sets his throne up there, sets up the abomination of desolation, the faithful there who are accounted worthy will escape to Zion, and those who are left behind will be sought after. You can read that again in Revelation 12, where Satan is cast down. He sends an army after God's people when they flee, according to Matthew 24, and they will be helped with a little help, and the army will drown, and then Satan will go after the remnant of her seed. So, people in the church will betray one another, it says. They'll cause each other to be put to death. Then, the tribulation, the abomination, the abomination will be set up, the tribulation will start, and the two witnesses will go out to preach the gospel around the world as a witness, and then the end will come three and a half years later, three days after they are killed. Well, that's the story of Purim in its latter-day fulfillment. Now, Purim then becomes a very, very important time for us to realize that it is going to be God's mighty hand, His deliverance, that allows us to escape from Satan and from the King of the North and the King of the South and all our enemies. He says the deliverance will be greater than the Red Sea. So when you think about Purim, realize it isn't just a historical story, it's a prophetic event. And that the book of Daniel even mentions the key players in Esther. Ahasuerus, King Cyrus, who would give to Ezra the opportunity to go build uh, the temple, and later with Nehemiah, the city of Jerusalem, just as we are told here in the end time, we will have unwalled cities that God will defend and put a wall of fire around, and we will build the temple and build Jerusalem, and then the abomination will be set up, and we will have to flee for our lives, and then God will give our enemies into our hand, and 
many, many, many millions will die of the plagues that come as a result. So the story is being reenacted in full and in much greater fulfillment than the story of Esther or the story in Daniel, the historical one, because this is the end-time one of the same events. So Mordecai and Esther are very, very important figures in our history. As the spiritual Jews, the bride of Christ, the king of kings, not just the king of the Medes and the Persians. And we will be treated by our enemies with great disrespect and hate, and many will die. But God will save those whom he accounts worthy. So when we keep Purim, let's do it with a high hand and an understanding of the joy and deliverance that came to them, of the joy and deliverance that came to Daniel when he didn't get eaten, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they didn't get thrown into the... well, they got thrown in, but they didn't burn. We're going to go through a certain amount of fire and have our brethren try to betray us, and will betray some of us. But God will deliver, and a great deliverance, and his work will be finished. And that's what the story of Esther is all about.